0: This morning I get to bring this message to you from the book of Acts. It's Acts twelve as we continue in our series in Acts: Spaces of Discipleship. Today we'll be looking at the prison as a space of discipleship. And I want to start out with a story about a woman named Rebecca Demara. Now, Rebecca Demara wasn't in prison. She was in a a not in a literal prison. She was in a prison of a different kind, a prison of hate. And unforgiveness. You see, uh, a man had taken the life of her 12 year old daughter, and she was consumed with hatred for this person. It was killing her. And uh, one day she was watching TV, and a story came on about a man named Gary Ridgway. It was his sentencing trial. Gary Ridgway is one of the most prolific serial killers in U.S. history. And it was a part of the trial where the crime victims' families were each allotted 10 minutes to confront Ridgeway and to to, uh, give a victim statement to him. And they came up one at a time, and as they did, they pretty much uniformly just directed a slew of anger and hatred towards Ridgeway, as you can imagine. Uh, And then someone different came up. A man named Bob Rule, he was the father of 16-year-old Linda Rule who'd been one of Ridgway's victims. And he stood and faced the killer and he said this, Mr. Ridgway, there are people here who hate you. I'm not one of them. I forgive you for what you've done. You've made it difficult to live up to what I believe and that is what God says to do and that is to forgive. And he doesn't say to forgive just certain people. He says, forgive all. So you are forgiven. Rebecca writes about this incident. Ridgway's face softened and his lips began to tremble. Then he began to cry. At that precise moment, I realized that the only way I would be able to go on living was to stop hating. I'd been consumed with hate for the man who had murdered my daughter. My heart and soul had been filled with blackness, and it nearly killed me. It had almost destroyed my family, too. I knew that if something didn't change, I would be in the graveyard, dead from a broken heart, next to my little daughter. As we begin to look at the prison as a space of discipleship, I want to submit that often it is through our most painful experiences... Our most difficult circumstances, our deepest wounds, that God calls us into a relationship with him that is deeper, more intense, that confronts what we truly believe in ways that like we've never experienced before, would never have to confront otherwise. And this morning, we'll look at how God used the prison in Peter's life and in the development of the early church to grow them in their faith and prepare them for what lied ahead. I want to be sure that I say at the outset that Scripture is very clear that God is not the author of evil. Suffering, death, sin, these were not his ideas. What he does promise to do is take what the enemy meant for evil and somehow, some way, turn it for good. Sometimes in ways that we don't really get to appreciate in this lifetime, ways that we'll only be able to fully understand in light of eternity. When we look back and we see the picture that he's woven over the centuries, that seems so messy when we were living it, but that from a distance, from a God's eye view, Somehow it's beautiful. Somehow it was worth it. Somehow that even we will say then with God, it was good. It all made sense. And so... As we get into the passage, I want us to, to take a step back and just sort of remember broadly speaking what Acts is all about. Acts is about, of course, the Acts of the Apostles, the establishment of the early church in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria towards the ends of the earth, right? And in Acts 10, we see a kind of a big shift point that was spoken about last week. Uh, you'll recall that, that Peter um, had just had a vision from God. Now before he had this vision, You might remember, I think it was about lunchtime, and he was getting kind of hungry. And I know it's probably dangerous to start talking about food right now as we're so close to lunch ourselves, but uh, he's getting kind of hungry, and he has this vision, and the sheet comes down, there's all these animals that normally he wouldn't even think about eating because they're all ritually unclean, Uh, and God, God says, you know, arise, kill, and eat. Peter says, no, I would never do such a thing. God says, hey, what I've called clean, don't you call unclean. And he realizes this isn't just about food. This is about, you know, we Jews, we're not supposed to associate with the Gentiles, but God is saying that now we are supposed to, that his word is for them too, that the gospel is for them too. And uh, so, you know, Peter gets called to Cornelius' Cornelius' house. He goes there, He, he shares the gospel, he sees the spirit come down, and and fall on these Gentiles the same as it did for him and his friends on the day of Pentecost. And so it's really starting to sink in at this point for Peter. The gospel really is for the Gentiles too. Like he's really starting to get it. And uh, so it's it's at that time that he, he leaves. He comes back to Jerusalem and the church leaders there confront him. They're like, hey, what are you doing? You're not supposed to be, you know spreading the word. that's supposed to be speaking with the Gentiles. Peter explains what happened. He explains the vision that was given to him. He takes them through it point by point. They come to accept it. They start spreading the word to the Gentiles and the church begins to grow. People are coming from everywhere to Antioch and it's at Antioch that they're first called Christians and uh, the church is just blowing up. It's just it's getting bigger and bigger and Barnabas and Saul and all these like heavy hitters are coming from everywhere teaching the word. They stay with them for a year. They're, they're teaching, they're preaching, everyone's growing, the church is expanding. It's amazing. So that brings us to Acts 12, which is our focus for today. And if you have your Bible, great. If you don't, the passages will be up on the screen. You can follow along. And we're just going to teach through it. So in verse one, it says, about that time, King Herod laid hands on some from the church to harm them. He had James, the brother of John, executed with a sword. And when he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too. This took place during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, we can get from the context that uh, Herod recognizes that the Jews are not too happy with Peter and James and the leader of this Christian rabble. And he, he liked to, to try and curry favor with the Jews that he ruled over And so to really just to do that, he rounds up some Christians. He has James put to death with with a sword, which probably means that James was beheaded. And, uh, you know, then then he gets Peter. And as we'll see, Peter is going to be released. But let's stop there for a minute, for a minute, because like, why is James killed and Peter goes free? Uh, I mean, James's family was probably happy for Peter's family, happy for Peter, but they had to be wondering, well, why him and not our boy? Like, why did our boy have to die? I mean, James was one of Jesus' main guys. Peter, James, and John, they were the inner circle. These guys were with Jesus doing everything together. They were, they they saw the miracle, they saw the dead raised, they saw the... The, the sick healed. They saw the resurrected Christ together. Surely it wasn't that James was somehow worse than Peter. No. Any more than, than Jesus had done something wrong and that's why he was crucified. Well, that's why James died. He must have done something wrong. No. That wasn't the case at all. And that's kind of how life is, isn't it? You know, one person is healed. Another person... Dies. One person uh, person's marriage thrives; another person's falls falls apart. One person's career takes off, despite the fact that they don't seem that talented. While well, another person's career tanks, even though they got all the talent in the world. Like, why does this happen? Uh, and I, and I think ultimately, at least for right now we have to just be honest and say we don't know why that happens. We don't know the answer to the problem of evil. You know, the problem of evil being how can a God who is all good and also all powerful allow the existence of evil? Like, we don't know the answer to this question. But I I think it's safe to say that, as I said in the beginning, when we confront these situations... In life, it forces us to lean into our faith in a way that we would have never had to lean into had we not been faced with this, with this uh, situation. Like it did in the case of Rebecca DeMora, having to forgive someone who had done something so awful forced to conf- her to confront the reality, the spiritual discipline of forgiveness in a way that she would have never had to confront otherwise. How could she have? How could you forgive a wound so deep unless you incur a wound so deep? Uh, And we'll see in the passage ahead that The same is going to be true for for Peter in the early church. In verse 4, moving on, When he had seized him, he put him in prison, handing him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. Herod planned to bring him out for public trial after the Passover, so Peter was kept in prison, but those in the church were earnestly praying to God for him. So, propelled by this crisis, the believers have gone into action. Right? They didn't... Start a, a theological debate over why this was happening. They didn't split into factions. They didn't begin fighting amongst one, another's, uh, amongst one another. No, they, they came together in unity. They gathered and they prayed. They used their various gifts. The passage doesn't go into it, but I imagine that some of them cooked. Some of them called everyone together. Some of them probably comforted one another. Uh, you know, they someone probably donated the meal. Like they each had a part to play, and they played it. They came together as the body of Christ to do what the body of Christ is meant to do, and that is to work as one, one body, each one playing their part to meet a need in the community. When suffering came, they didn't abandon their faith. They came together. And that's what we're called to do. Moving on in verse 6. At that very night, before Herod was going to bring him out for trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains while guards in front of the door were keeping watch over the prison. Okay, so we got four squads of Roman soldiers, four soldiers to a squad, set 16 soldiers watching him, one chain to each wrist, He's meant to be executed the very next day and he's asleep. Now, Peter doesn't have a great record for staying awake when he's supposed to. Okay, I want to say, you know, like maybe he's just a really sound sleeper. I don't know. That seems like a bit of a superficial explanation. Uh, But... It's true, on, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when, when Jesus was arrested, Jesus said, hey, stay awake with me and pray. And, and Jesus comes back and, and Peter's sound asleep. But I think it's possible that while Peter seems to be sleeping peacefully on the outside here, it's because on the inside, he has abandoned himself completely to the will of God in his life. I think that he's thinking that James has been beheaded and, and I'm next and this is it. I think he's probably reflected on by now all the miracles he's seen. He's, he's reflecting on the, the fact that he's seen Jesus raise people from the dead. He, he's seen the resurrected Christ himself on the shore reinstating him after he denied Christ three times, feeling the guilt of his his unbelief, them, feeling worthless, feeling like he didn't have anything to offer. And Jesus says to him, no, you're Peter, the rock, and on this rock I will build my church. And, And he's remembering that. And I think at this point he's sleeping peacefully because he's saying, I can trust Jesus even with my life, even though they put me to death, I will live. And and. I'm sure it was not comfortable in that prison and and I'm sure he there may may have been some fear I don't know it would make sense if there was but, but he's asleep I think if falling asleep in Gethsemane is an example of the weakness of his flesh then his sleep here in prison exemplifies the strength of his faith that Jesus has overcome even death itself and we, we can get a hint to that because 20 years later, sitting in another Roman prison that he would not escape from, he would be crucified. He writes these words in, uh, in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 6-7, he says, By his great mercy... He gave us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that is, into an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It is reserved in heaven for you, who by God's power are protected through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This brings you great joy. Although you may have to suffer for a short time in various trials, listen to this, such trials show the proven character of your faith, which is much more valuable than gold, Gold that is tested by fire, and even though it is passing away, and will be, bring pr- praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I think it's safe to conclude that God used these experiences in Peter's life to prepare him for the next 20 years of ministry where he would face persecution as the early church was founded and established and and he would go through many more trials and and God used this time to prepare him in a way that he would not have been prepared for otherwise and it was not pleasant and it's not fun. And I personally don't like suffering. If I can avoid it, trust me, I will. But I can't deny, I cannot deny that God has used it in my life To strengthen my faith. I just can't deny it. I don't like it. I wish there was another way. And that's what he's doing with Peter here. Moving on, verse 7. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the prison cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off Peter's wrist. And the angel said to him, fasten your belt on and put on your sandals. And Peter did so. Then the angel said to him, put on your cloak and follow me. This reminds me of getting my kids out of bed in the morning and trying to get them to school. Now put your shirt on. Now put your pants on. Now you need socks. Now you have to eat breakfast. Now, come on, now we have to get your shoes. Where's your back? You know, an angel of the Lord has shown up in his cell and it seems like Peter needs some prodding to get going. I mean, yes, he was sleeping, but it's like... He's not getting his mind around what's happening here. Like it's really time to get up and go. The, the chains are gone. You know, and like in the song we, we just sang, the chains are gone, you've been set free. But he's still kind of in a daze. S- sometimes you have to get up and you have to shake off the chains that God has opened and start moving towards the door because it's time to leave the prison. Verse 9, Peter went out and followed him. He didn't realize that what was happening through the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. After they had passed the first and second guards, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went outside and walked down one narrow street when at once the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from everything the Jewish people were expecting to happen. Like, this is so good that it's almost like I mean, Peter's saying this to himself. You know, Peter is saying to himself, what? like, I'm not going to die. I'm actually been set, God has set me free. He, he's saying this to him. It's like he's trying to convince himself to kind of get with the program here. Uh, verse 12, when Peter realized this, he went to the house of Mary, uh, the mother of John and Mark, Where many people had gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the outer gate, a slave girl named Rhoda answered. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she did not open the gate, but ran back in and told them that Peter was standing at the gate. But they said to her, you've lost your mind. But she kept insisting that it was Peter, and they kept saying, it's his angel. Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were greatly astonished. He motioned to them with his hand to be quiet, and then related How the Lord had brought him out of the prison. He said, Tell James and the brothers these things. And then he left and went to another place. Now, the Jews believed that uh, people had a guardian angel and that this guardian angel kind of would resemble them a little bit. So it's just interesting to me that here they've been gathering and praying for Peter's release, and they would sooner believe that it's his guardian angel at the door then it is actually Peter at the door, the one who they've been praying to be released. Like they'd rather believe it's his guardian angel, not that God had actually answered their prayers. This reminds me of a time when we were getting ready to move to Scotland. It was a little more than four years ago. And uh, my wife and I, were in the front yard of our house. And so um, like our house is behind me. And then there was a tree in the front yard and then the, the street and a street light out there. And uh, I was praying, sort of praying, sort of wondering, like, us moving to Scotland, God, is this really what you want? Does this, does this please you? Is this pleasing to you, what we're doing? And I mean, this is kind of a silly example, but I turned around and the way that the light from the street was shining through the leaves of the tree, created, you know, like a happy face emoji? I mean, it was like somebody had stamped a happy face emoji on the wall of our house. Right when I'm wondering, God, is this pleasing to you? And I've been out there a hundred times and there's never been a happy face emoji on the front of my house. But that night there was. And right then... When I was wondering, God, is this pleasing to you? I mean, I rub my eyes. I'm looking at it. I'm like, am I really seeing this? It stayed there for as long as I looked at it. And I just think that's how it is sometimes when God answers our prayers. You know, things happen. They line up in just such a way. Just the right combination of things happens to make what seemed completely impossible possible. And we want to just write it off to coincidence, we want to write it off to circumstance, we want to rationalize it, we want to think of some logical explanation instead of just accepting that God has moved in our lives in a way that is powerful and, and undeniable. So uh, I think there's a lesson in there for us. Now, the next thing we notice is that the tables are turned on the Roman soldiers who'd been guarding Jesus. In uh, verse 18, it says, At daybreak, there was great consternation among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and did not find him, he questioned the guards and commanded that they be led away to execution. Then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Uh, the thing with the Roman soldiers was... Uh, If you were guarding someone and they had a a sentence given to them and they escaped, then whatever that sentence was, you got it instead of the person who escaped. So this is sort of like the the soldiers who were guarding Jesus' tomb. They were also executed when on the third day he was resurrected. They couldn't find him anywhere. Uh, So the tables had been, been turned on them because... You know, they had been thinking they were going to be involved in Peter's execution the next day and said it was them who went. And little did he know the same thing was about to happen to Herod. Verse 20, it says, Now Herod was having an angry quarrel with the people of Tyre and Sidon. So they joined together and presented themselves before him. And after convincing Blastus... The king's personal assistant to help them, they asked for peace because their country's food supply was provided by the king's country. On a day determined in advance, Herod put out his royal robes, sat down on the judgment seat, made a speech to them. But the crowd began to shout, "The voice of a god and not of a man!" Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck Herod down because he did not give the glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems a little weird to me. Uh, you know, I, I, sometimes you read these stories in the Bible and you think, okay, you know, did that really happen? Uh, just, seems, just seems like you kind of need to take it with a grain of salt. Well, um, Josephus, who probably many of you have heard of, uh, was a Roman historian writing in the time when these events took place. And he actually uh, writes an account of, of this event, so I'll read you what he, what he wrote. He was, he was a Jew. He was not a Christian. In fact, if anything, he was a little bit anti-Christian. So he wrote this. On the second day of the spectacles, he, he referring to Herod, put on a garment made wholly of silver of a truly wonderful texture and came into the theater early in the morning. There, the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays, shone out in a wonderful manner. And he was so resplendent as to spread awe over those that looked intently upon him. Presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place and one from another, that he was a God. And they added, Be thou merciful to us, for although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, yet shall we henceforth own thee as superior to mortal nature. Upon this the king neither rebuked them nor rejected their impious flattery. A severe pain arose in his belly. Striking with the most violent intensity, and when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed from this life. Josephus' account, combined with Luke's, might uh, might have us think that it was some kind of intestinal parasite or something that struck Herod uh, at that moment. But you know, it's it's these kinds kind of, kind of extra biblical evidence that. I think God allows us to discover at times to, to just to validate his word because he knows we need it. You know, we're, we're, we're weak sometimes. As I said, we want to rationalize, we want to justify, we want to think logically. Um, and apparently this happened. And, and I just mention that because it, it goes to the fact that God's word is trustworthy. It's reliable, it's authoritative. We can trust it. That what he says is true. That when he says he's got us, he's really got us. That when he says he's forgiven us, he's really forgiven us. That when he says he's paid the price for our sin to reconcile us to God, he's really done it. And it's important that we trust it. Moving on, verse 24. I love how the chapter ends. But the word of God kept increasing and multiplying. So Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem when they had completed their mission, bringing along with them John Mark. It's like we get this account of Herod, you know, and then he died of worms, but the word of God kept increasing and multiplying. It's as if Luke is trying to get us to realize, like, those who opposed God were stopped and God's plan continued on. You know, those who would try to thwart the church and stop it were unsuccessful because everything kept on moving along according to plan. Herod is just a speed bump to God's plan. So Acts 12 ends the opposite of how it starts. It starts with Herod acting like he's God. The soldiers thinking they're in control that they're going to conduct an execution the next day. Peter's in prison about to be executed. The church is on the run. By the end of the chapter, we see that Peter is free. The church is encouraged as their prayers are answered. The Roman soldiers are executed. And Herod is struck down by God. Quite a turn of events. And you know, I think it's important to reflect that nothing has stopped the church. Has it? You know, it's written that I will establish my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And they haven't. The enlightenment didn't stop it. Different political movements didn't stop it. Different nations that have risen up and opposed it didn't stop it. They have gone down. The church has increased. Uh, the, uh, the philosophical, existentialism didn't stop it. Nihilism didn't stop it. Postmodernism didn't stop it. Modernism didn't stop it. Post-Christianity won't stop it. Nothing is going to stop it. It's not going to be stopped. God's plan is going to be fulfilled. It's gonna be. You look back on two thousand years of history and it's the same story. Nothing's gonna stop God's plan. So as we look at the prison as a space for discipleship, just in in, in conclusion here, I wanna just reiterate that for Peter it was a literal prison that that he had to deal with. you know, there could be people in this room, people listening somehow, some way on the internet or whatever, that are facing a literal prison. Uh, but sometimes the, the prisons that hold us are invisible prisons. They're, they're prisons of unforgiveness and hate like they were for Rebecca DeMora. They're prisons of shame that tell us that we have nothing to offer, that we're of no significance, that we're of no value, that no one will want us. They're prisons of fear. They're prisons of insecurity. You know, and God wants to set us free from those prisons. And so, as we think about that, I've got just three principles to close with. Uh, first principle prison is a place to abandon ourselves to God's plan. We need to abandon ourselves to God's plan. You know that, uh, that scene in, I always go to this illustration because it's a good one. Uh, that scene in Indiana Jones. Remember the movie Indiana Jones? I hope so because I don't have a clip. <laughs> Uh, but it's where he's at, the one where he's on the search for the Holy Grail. And he comes, he's got to go through all those different traps and things as he's going through this cave to get back into the inner, inner room where the, the Grail is kept. And he comes to this part where there's this huge chasm and it looks like there's no way to get across it. And he's looking at his little guidebook and his guidebook says, uh, it's a leap of faith that you need to have to make it across. And, Indiana Jones is thinking a leap of faith is crazy. It's crazy, a leap of faith. What do they mean? There's no way you can leap across that. He realizes he's got to just take a step out in faith and he does and when he does, there's a bridge there. And I think that's what it means to abandon ourselves to God's plan. It means that even when it looks crazy, even when it looks impossible, even when it looks like there's nothing there, there's no solid ground there, that that's the time when we just, we need to abandon ourselves and say, okay, God, you've called me to this. I'm going to take a step and I'm going to trust that when I put my foot down, there's going to be something solid there. And, and that's what, what I think enabled Peter to sleep that night. I think that's what Rebecca Demara had to do to forgive when there was no reason to forgive other than to know she couldn't go on living filled with hate. Because God's way is a better way. Uh, Oswald Chambers says, We are not called to be successful in accordance with ordinary standards, but in accordance with a corn of wheat falling into the ground and dying, becoming in that way what it could never be if it were to abide alone. I think sometimes abandoning ourselves to God means abandoning thinking, like our preconceived notions about how things are supposed to work. And that's the thing that needs to fall to the ground and die so that God can use us and multiply us in the way that he created us to, to do since before the beginning of time. Now, I, I mentioned, I, I, I just want to say it again, just to make sure everyone's listening. I don't like suffering. I, I don't like it. I, I would avoid it anytime if I could. You know, my wife's over there. I'm sure she'll tell you if you want to know. I, I uh, I know none of us like suffering, and I don't think that the Bible teaches us that we're supposed to enjoy suffering. Even Jesus prayed, let this cup pass from my lips, but not my will, but yours be done. Um, But we go where God calls us, and we go when he calls us, and we do what he calls us to do. And then we wait to hear from him, and we do the next thing. And and that's what it means to be abandoned to God. Next uh, principle, prison is a place of prayer. Prayer. Prison is a place of prayer. You know, it's not that we only pray when we're in prison, but there are few who don't pray when they're in prison. Uh, we, in prayer, we speak to God and He speaks back to us. And it's like my kind of trite example of the, the happy face on, um, on my wall of my house. Like, I'm talking and God's listening, and something happens. And, and I pay attention to it. And I, and I accept, like, God, this is from you. And then I move forward. And, and that's life with God. And that's definitely life in prison. We, we, we talk. God answers. We listen. We look at the way that he's orchestrating things in our lives. And we take a step forward in faith. Soren Kierkegaard wrote, Prayer does not change God, but it changes him who prays. God, he reiterates us as we pray. He makes and unmakes us as we pray. He molds us, he shapes us. He calls our attention to things that we would have missed otherwise by having other believers speak to us and comfort us in prayer. Third principle, final one. If you don't get anything else out of this, I pray you'll really get this. Prison is a a place to remember that Jesus is the key that opens the lock. And what I mean by that is Jesus is the one who sets us free. It is his word and his spirit that sets us free. So what do you need to be set free from? What is holding you back? What is imprisoning you? What is it? Are you dealing with guilt? Because Jesus paid the price for your sins. He paid that debt. Are, are you dealing with shame? You think you're unworthy? You think you're not valuable? Well, Jesus thought you were valuable enough to die for. He says that he created you for a plan. He's, he's got a purpose for your life. He's given you gifts to, to fulfill that person. He's given you the ability to, to walk that out. Uh, Are you dealing with unforgiveness? Because Jesus taught us how to forgive. Even when the person that we're forgiving doesn't deserve it. Are you you tired of striving for your value or significance? Well, God's word says, cease striving. Know that I am God. Rest in me. Now, I know that there are some listening who uh, are in the middle of it right now in the middle of the suffering in the middle of the pain and these spiritual truths might be hard to hold on to when you're in a time like that I, I, I know that and that's where the body of Christ comes in the church and we're blessed to have a church that is great at coming around us when we're struggling see when you're when you're struggling when you're suffering you don't have to do it alone That's why God has given you a body of Christ to to be a part of, to plug into. Don't isolate. Lean in. Go to the prayer ministry. Go to the prophetic team. Go to CAP. Go to the counseling service. Go join a missional community. Like, plug into what exists here. Come, Come to Life Care, the ministry that we're a part of. You don't have to do it alone. You need people around you who can remind you of these truths, who can comfort you, who can listen to you, and who can be the hands and feet of Christ to you? And that's the power in the body of Christ. But I'll tell you, you can put your faith in Him to see you through this, whatever it is. The gates of hell have not prevailed against His church for 2,000 years, and they're not gonna, and nothing is gonna derail His plan for your life either. It's one way or another he has got you and he's not going to let you go. So I'm going to close in prayer and uh, just bow your heads with me. Lord, we love you and um, God, we, none of us like to suffer, but we trust you in our suffering. We trust that you've got us, that you've got a plan for us. And uh, God, I pray for those who are suffering right now that you would bring people around them to love them, to care for them, to remind them of of how much you love them and to remind them of your plan for their life and um, to just offer practical help and support. And God, I pray as a church, we would be a, a place that we would be known throughout the city, throughout this country, throughout this world even, as a place that helps people discover the freedom that they have in your son, Jesus Christ. Not just freedom from sin, but freedom to live an abundant life, the life that you've created us for. So we love you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.